Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. I've not seen a Prime Minister use terms like Manchurian candidate or Beijing's preferred candidate, ever. And it's a, it is a demonstration of the extent to which Scott Morrison is desperate. But it is also a trashing of Australia's national interests. Hello, lovely people of podcasts. Welcome to the show. You're with Catherine Murphy and I'm with Penny Wong, who is Labor's Senate leader and the Shadow Minister for Foreign Affairs. Welcome to the show, Penny. Well, it's great to be with you. Sorry, it's taken us a bit of time to get this (laughs) organised. Well, we're both busy people, you and me, and I'm glad that we've managed to get this done. Now, uh, it's been a big week in the Kaki election. I think we'd both agree. And uh, we're going to track to your portfolio specifically in a minute. Um, But I just want to start with a couple of issues in the defence portfolio because the events of the week have sort of necessitated that really. Um, Obviously, the government this week, amongst many uh, accusations about Labor, has dwelt on a difference in defence spending between the Labor government that you were a member of, the Howard government and defence spending currently. Now, Anthony Albanese in a speech to the Lowy Institute this week made the point that the difference in spending between Labor and the coalition was, uh, well, two-fifths of bugger all, to use a technical term, but nonetheless it is a fact that Labor spent less on defence than the coalition. Why? Well, the first question I want to answer that I think you know, your podcast listeners uh, might want to answer is, you know, why is it that they want to have this fight? Um, and I think the answer is really clearly when Mr Morrison's under political pressure, that's what he looks for. He looks for difference, he looks for a fight, and he does it because, frankly, I, I think he's desperate. Um, and that's what we're seeing here. Um, when it comes to defence spending, let's be clear, defence spending should reflect the strategic circumstances in which a country um, finds itself. Uh, and that is the explanation for the fact that if you look at the average uh, of defence expenditure under both John Howard and the Rod Gillard governments, it's just over 1.7% of GDP. So I think it's 1.78% was Howard, 1.75% for us. So it's you know, a very similar level. 
the reality is Australia's strategic circumstances have changed and uh, a much higher level of defence expenditure is something that both parties of government uh, have committed to because that's what's necessary. Uh, and that's what Anthony made clear today. I would also make the point, though, you don't, you know, frankly, this government uh, might have spent a lot of money but hasn't delivered the capability that's required. And, you know, we've got 30 defence projects running about 79 years late, cumulatively, uh, in excess of $4 billion over budget. We spent $2.4 billion of taxpayers' money on scrapped French submarines. So I'm not sure you get to boast about increasing defence expenditure when you're actually not delivering the capability the country needs. Benign circumstances or more benign circumstances in the past versus the change in strategic environment, that's that's the reason. But an incoming Labor government, in the event that you win the election, you guys win the election in May, will have a bunch of spending priorities, uh, you know, some of which have already been outlined. Can Australians be confident that uh, Labor will prioritise expenditure in defence of, you know, 2% of GDP or whatever the, the metric is, given that you will, you'll have a bunch of priorities, Penny? Uh, yes, they can be. Uh, and I regret that we live in a world where we have to, um, you know, be putting so many more resources into defence and where we have to um, take some of the decisions we have to take, but we have to take them. Um, we live in a, a much more challenging world. Our external circumstances are more difficult than at any time pro uh, since World War II. Uh, I said that for a few years ago, uh, and things have only got worse since. So I think that does mean for whoever's in government, much higher levels of defence expenditure, and that's going to have consequent decisions for other parts of the budget that you know, we, we might, uh, in different circumstances, like to be putting uh, more investment in. Mm. And uh, sticking with defence, just a couple of questions on the AUKUS partnership. Um, now, Labor has obviously backed in this proposal, and I, I think all listeners to the show would know what we're talking about. This is an agreement between Australia, the US and the United Kingdom to acquire nuclear-powered submarines. Now, Labor has provided full-throated, as far as I can see, endorsement to this proposal. Um, but again, if you guys win the election, you are the government that's going to have to turn a proposal into reality. Now, just a very basic question, Penny. Can you, can you tell me how we build these boats in Australia in the absence of a domestic nuclear industry? First, let's be clear, AUKUS is not just about submarines. Uh, AUKUS is a partnership between Australia, the United Kingdom and the, and the United States to work together uh, and to share uh, military technology, to share capability, um, to cooperate even more closely, and that's a good thing. Obviously, the biggest part of that announcement was um, the submarines. And the reason Labor uh, has provided uh, complete bipartisan support for this is because of the compelling uh, capability argument which Defence and others put to us about why Australia needed uh, nuclear-propelled submarines at this time. Um, in terms of civil nu nuclear industry, um, you, you correctly you know, you referenced that. Uh, one of the things that we were briefed and one of the things uh, Scott Morrison said publicly is that the nature of this technology does not require civil nuclear capability. 
Having said all that, you, you correctly referenced this is a, an enormous undertaking. Uh, I heard a former Chief of the Defence Force saying uh, after the announcement that this is a bigger undertaking than any uh, previous procurement in Australia's history. It will be uh, fostered by, managed by and delivered by both parties of government over many decades. Now, that's why Anthony wrote to, to Scott Morrison and said, let's have a bipartisan committee so we can be engaged on this. That was refused. Uh, it is a, a very big undertaking. There are many questions, some of which you, you raise, about how it will be delivered, how we will manage the capability gap between the retirement of the Collins-class submarine and the arrival of the first nuclear submarine. Uh, how do we engage Australian uh, content in this? All of those questions will need to be worked through by whomever wins the election. Mm. Picking up from that and uh, thinking about the capability gap, right, uh, obviously uh, Anthony Albanese flagged this week in his speech to the Lowy Institute that there, there could be, uh, you know, steps you take with the Collins class, for example, that, that sort of that begins to meet the capability gap. But another another option would be persuading either the United Kingdom or the US to base one of these submarines in Australia uh, and conduct joint exercises with UK or US naval personnel, you know, so that so that they could obviously train Australian crews in the operation of these of this craft. It just strikes me as obvious that that could be an interim step, it's sort of, I don't really understand why there seems to be no discussion about that, given it seems to be obvious. Would that would that be an option? Uh, look, I'm not going to, from opposition, sort of start hypothesising. I mean, it's fine for you. you. You can put those points to me. There are many, many options that people have floated. As Anthony said today, we're not going to do that from opposition, but what he did say is we would address the capability gap and we would work through how we deal with it. Because one of the most striking things about uh, you know, the announcement was there was a lot of focus on the announcement, a lot of focus on Mr Morrison's media um, and photo ops around it. But for me, one of the most telling moments was in Senate estimates when I was asking questions about this and it became abundantly clear that... Oh, you know, by any maths, there is a capability gap. How big it is, you know, that, that, that will be an issue people might argue on. But there was no plan to deal with it, which I, I just found extraordinary. Like if you junk a contract, and I, I accept, you know, that, that the government believed it was necessary, but if you junk your second submarine contract for a third uh, process to get another contract in place but you don't turn your mind to what happens in the interim, I just think is the height of irresponsibility. Mm. Which is really the point of me asking you these questions. Mm. And look, I, fair enough. And I understand the difficulty of hypothesising from opposition what you may or may not do, but nonetheless you have met uh, with senior figures in the US and the UK relatively recently. Uh, you know, did you flag this with them? <laughs> Did you flag the, you know, the the enormous gap we have between the strategic threat and Australia's ability to combat it, and what options might be able to be pursued in order to fix that problem? Look, we, we, I mean, I don't go into 
those discussions in detail, but obviously AUKUS and the bipartisan support for it, uh, including for the submarine uh, project, was discussed. Uh, and I think you've seen from Anthony's speech, uh, we're very seized of this. Uh, in a way, it doesn't appear that the government is, uh, and it will be something uh, that we will have to address should we win. Mm, but the how remains mysterious. Well, the how, the how is something that really the government of the day has to work through with you know, the people who are dealing with um, this submarine capability and with its partners. Do you think that, uh, and this is the last question before we actually get into your portfolio, do you think that it is absolutely essential that the submarines be built in Australia, given the the darkening strategic environment, given this capability gap that you and I are canvassing, do you think it's absolutely essential that these boats need to be built in Australia? I mean, because the rational, logical thing would be to try and acquire these uh, vessels by the quickest route possible, not necessarily by having an Indigenous workforce that's learning a whole bunch of skills, including nuclear technology that that this this country doesn't. But I think the issue is we want this to be a sovereign capability Uh, and that is a capability that Australia is capable of utilising and sustaining and and that's why, uh, you know, Labor sought to and delivered the Coleman submarines built here and it's why uh, we are saying and I think the government is saying there will be um, built here, you know, precisely how that looks, obviously I assume the government is working through. Uh, but the, I think, policy argument for it is you want sovereign capability. Uh, you want to be able to use, sustain, uh, maintain capability that your Defence Force uses in Australia. Mm, look, I understand the rationale for that, but it's I'm not sure quite how, how the rationale for that, which is perfectly sound and logical, aligns with the capability gap. I mean, there, there are just massive questions here, Penny. There are massive questions about the capability gap. You're right, and I think the government has chosen to completely gloss over them, uh, and which is why Anthony went to it in his speech today and said, look, we, we, we want to address this, you know, we're not going not gonna, to you know, shy away from, from dealing with this. And, and it does say something about Mr Morrison and Mr Dutton who want to go up to a, a barracks in Brisbane and Queensland when, when, you know, northern New South Wales and Queensland are struggling with floods, make an announcement about troops which is not going to be re- fully delivered until 2040 but are very silent on how they will deal with the capability gap in our most important um, naval capability. Do you think that, sorry, I mean, I did promise you this was the last question, but I'm just curious about your instinct. Do you think they have a plan? Do you, do you actually think there is a plan? If they have, I haven't seen it. <laughs> it's a it's a cunning, well hidden plan. Yes. Anyway, I hope <laughs> hidden in plain sight, maybe. Look, look, I'm sorry, but I mean, I hope someone has a plan. That's all I'm saying. Um, no, it's a very good question. It's a very good question. Highly mm. problematic from almost every angle. And I just like to point out, and this may not happen that often, Catherine Murphy and Greg Sheridan are on the same page. <laughs> You'd be surprised. I bet all your podcast listeners are going, what? Cognitive dissonance. (laughs) Greg Sheridan and I have been known to agree in the past. I know, it's true, but but, very much so on this one. No, but it's, yeah, it's just, you know, it'd be fine if it wasn't so serious. 
put it that way. Mm, but, correct. you know, this is pretty bloody serious. Anyway, as is foreign affairs, your portfolio. So let's go there now. Um, obviously, Penny, you are uh, sort of contemplating a return to government in the event that Labor wins this campaign. You may or you may not, right? But obviously you're planning for a transition. I'm not sure. Yeah, I was going to say we're, I'm planning. I'm not sure contemplating after 2019. There's no, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I don't contemplate it. No. I plan for what we would have to do without uh, actually engaging with, you know, any assumptions? No, no, and uh, and I understand that. That's a sort of surefire way to protect yourself from post post. Well, not post trauma, actual trauma on life. Actual trauma on election <laughs> night. But anyway, let's not mention that. Um, oh dear. Yes. So you uh, know, I'm not doing it again. Oh, you're not. You're no, not. No, I just I thought that's it after that one. Well, no, I'm not doing it again. <laughs> yes, if you've forgotten, I imagine again most listeners <laughs> will will have reasonably acute memories of Penny. Uh, on the on the election coverage, live election coverage in 2019, this is, of course, the election that uh, everybody said that Labor would win, which, of course, Labor lost. So this is why we're riffing on trauma. But anyway. Jackie, do you want me to tell you a backstory on that? <laughs> a very quick backstory. Yeah. I worked out at 7.30, I think it was, because I got some um, exit polling from some of our scrutineers. I got some numbers from some of our scrutineers in Queensland. Yeah. I worked out we were losing. And I remember calculating how many hours I'd have to be on television before before Bill conceded <laughs> and thinking, I don't know how I'm going to do this. Well, you did. Let, <laughs> let the record show that you did. <laughs> you did. You didn't pull off your lapel mic and run for the door. Well, that would be, you know, well, churlish, wouldn't it? Well, it might have been necessary, but anyway, grimly uh, you remained on screen. Uh, reporting the uh, results, or, well, dealing with the loss, basically, in front of, you know, um, millions of your closest friends. Anyway, um, foreign affairs, without obviously uh, assume, making any assumptions whatsoever, and I don't think either of us are making any assumptions about this particular election outcome, you must be thinking, though, at this point, how would I do this differently? So how would you do it differently? Well, I think... So two overarching points. The first is I wouldn't have foreign policy driven by domestic political uh, matters uh, and I think that's one of the primary failings of Mr Morrison and regrettably Maurice Payne hasn't been able to deter him from it, which is he drives foreign policy. He, he, foreign policy for Scott Morrison is driven by his domestic political interests and I think that is a fundamentally um, incorrect way to run things. I think I would also want foreign policy to have a much more central role than it currently has under the government. Uh, you see, given the circumstances we face, we really need to deploy all aspects of state power, all aspects of Australian power, strategic, diplomatic, economic and social. Uh, and we need to do so consistently and calmly in order to advance Australia's interests. So I see, uh, I would hope, with me as Foreign Minister uh, and uh, with DFAT you know, not only having, I hope, more resources but more leadership, that we could return foreign policy very much uh, to the centre of you know, the geostrategic questions that Australia faces. 
you're talking about centrality. Do you mean that in in the sense of how you comport yourself, how you conduct yourself, or do you mean something structural that I'm that I'm not comprehending? No, I, I mean I mean making sure that we don't look at our strategic circumstances and think that the only thing we have to do is make announcements uh, about. Yeah, what's going to happen in 2040? It's about remembering we've got to improve, strengthen our military capability. We also have to work much more closely in the region to maximise our influence, to shape the world and the region for the better. Uh, And that is about deploying all of our diplomatic capability and leadership to that end. So the three things I think about in my head are rebuilding our diplomatic capability to maximise our influence and shape shape the world and the region for the better, Uh, projecting the reality of modern Australia. I think we uh, would gain a a great deal uh, of benefit from talking to the world as modern Australia, including First Nations identity, our multicultural character, uh, and finally, uh, I think strong, trusted partnerships has always been Labor's way, multilaterally and in our region, and it would be um, the way of an Albanese Labor government. And what about uh, what about China and Australia's relationship with China? Uh, obviously, um, we've we've seen a sort of hyperpartisan attack on Labor's national security credentials. Uh, you know, sort of accusations of Manchurian candidates and so on. So uh, I'm sort of raising this penny, I suppose, to preface that it's difficult to have a rational conversation about the Australia-China relationship without it being reduced in some, you know, way to being a graphic novel, right? But uh, nonetheless, let's try. Um, How would you approach the China relationship? Do you think that a diplomatic thaw is possible, you know, that that it's not beyond uh, the wit of of us and Beijing, or are we past that point? Has China, in essence, through increasing militarisation, through Xi's, you know, very autocratic and despotic approach at home, is it just not possible to have commonality in in the relationship? China has changed, um, as you identify. And because China has changed, the nature of our relationship with China has changed. And that will be so regardless of who is in government. Uh, And uh, I think Frances Adamson said uh, before she left the Department of Foreign Affairs that really the challenge for whoever is in government is to manage enduring differences in the relationship. Uh, in the best interests of the country. So we, we've said, you know, we've given, we recognise and understand the way in which China has changed and the consequences for the relationship. Uh, we, are, we will not take a backward step when it comes to our national interests. Uh, we won't be abandoning the positions that, that cause uh, China concern, the, Australia's position on the South China Sea, Australia's uh, right to determine who builds its 5G network and who is part of the NBN. Um, we're, we're not going to abandon our position on uh, the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea or human rights or foreign interference. 
What we wouldn't do is play domestic politics with the China relationship. Uh, and the sort of language that you've described, which is really unprecedented, like I've not seen, I've not seen a prime minister use terms like Manchurian candidate or Beijing's preferred candidate ever. And it's a, it is a, it is a demonstration of the extent to which Scott Morrison is desperate, but it is also a trashing of Australia's national interests because one of the things that makes us strongest is our unity. Uh, and Anthony spoke about that this week, as have you know, people like Dennis Richardson, who has served both parties of government as head of ASIO, as head of defence and as head of foreign affairs. People like Mike Burgess, who's the current Director General of ASIO, uh, and many others. Our unity, our bipartisanship on key issues of national security and foreign policy is one of our democracy's greatest strengths. And instead of recognising that, respecting it and honouring it in the national interest, you have a leader who is prepared uh, to try and create difference because he thinks it's in his interests. If there were ever an example of why this man is not worthy of being Prime Minister, it's Scott Morrison's behaviour in the last few weeks around China. It's been interesting, though, over... I mean, I've heard what you've said, obviously, that there would not be any substantial difference between Labor and the Coalition in terms of the management of the relationship and that China, in essence, has made that decision for itself. But there are interesting nuances if you sort of look closely. It's been interesting to me that at the diplomatic level in Australia that the ambassador has made a couple of conciliatory overtures. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the Foreign Minister has met with the ambassador. Yes, exactly. So, mm. And when I was asked about that, I said, you know, she should engage because it, China's not, you know, we live in the same region and we have great differences with the, with, in terms of our views of what that region should look like. You know, Australia, you know, we do. Uh, but, you know, the way we should progress that or the way Australia should deal with that is by working with others to support and protect those rules of the road uh, uh, and we should engage with China, engage with China, but on the terms that we see are in our national interest. Just sort of picking up on your critique, I guess, about the deployment of uh, national security and foreign affairs as, as artefacts of partisan politics. Um, do you, oh, weapons. Well, yes. I'm not sure it's artefacts. No, no, it's true. <laughs> no, they're actual clubs. That's true. Well, that's true. Actual clubs that can. Uh, so, but do you think if that were to be dialed down, if that wasn't such a prominent feature of the daily discourse, that that might be a sort of foundation for a reset of some type? I don't mean. I turn. I, yeah, I turn it. I turn the question around. I mean, I think that we have uh, that uh, our relationship with China is complex and challenging and difficult, and it is not made any easier. Uh, it is only made harder by the playing of domestic politics with it. So yes, if if we could tone down the domestic conversation to something proportionate, right, rather than something that's sort of stylized and. And and hyper aggressive, then maybe there's maybe there's some room there. 
But, but ultimately it's also a question for China, isn't mm. it? Well, we can't control how they behave and you know, if China chooses to continue to impose what are clearly coercive economic measures on Australia, then that's going to have a consequence in terms of the relationship. Mm. Yeah. Let me take you back just a fraction uh, before you were you were reflecting on um, the importance of having a diplomatic service that's sort of fit for the times uh, in terms of proper resourcing and skilling and all of that sort of stuff. Um, I, I'm curious, Penny, I've not asked, asked you in the past, are you, are you entirely comfortable about uh, having a departmental head? You referenced Francis Adamson a moment ago, who obviously has retired. The current head of DFAT is not a career diplomat. I'm not sure if that's the first time in the department's history where that's happened, but it's certainly a rarity. Uh, do you think that the head of DFAT needs to be a career diplomat? Well, that's a sensitive question, isn't it, because it's going to an individual, but in, in the abstract, uh, I, I think... Well, uh, and to be clear, I'm not, I'm not casting any aspersions on the individual. I actually agree with um, the point Alan Gindrell has made which is you know, that the Foreign Service, Department of Foreign Affairs, uh, is the department which deals fundamentally should shape and operationalise Australia's engagement with the world. Uh, and given that, you would hope that it is led by people who have the capability, capacity uh, and knowledge to do so. I think you've answered the question in a way that doesn't negatively reflect on the... Well, I suppose, you know, leadership comes... Leadership is across the department, it's not an individual, but um, um, I, I think, uh, you know, there's, it's a pretty difficult time in the world and we have to make our way uh, in our region and in the world uh, in a way we haven't to have had to uh, since the end of World War II. Um, you know, I say we, we live in a time where our region is being reshaped. Our region is being reshaped and the outcome of that reshaping and the progress of that and the, the trajectory of that is going to affect our children and our grandchildren. So we have a responsibility at this time to maximise Australia's influence on that reshaping so they can live in a region uh, that most protects and promotes Australia's interests and values. And that, that requires politicians and our diplomatic service to step up because it is a greater challenge and task than we've faced previously. And what about uh, political... There's a lot of political appointments in terms of uh, ambassadorships around the world, and again, I'm not saying this gratuitously to reflect on any individuals. I'm sure you know there's a lot of political appointees who are doing great jobs around the world. But, for instance, would Labor be comfortable with Arthur Sinodinos still in in Washington? Uh, for example, again, I'm not personalising it, but it, it, there's just a very obvious appointment there, uh, and there are other sort of senior Liberal figures in key posts around the world. What's your attitude to that? I don't know if I want to be drawn again on individuals. I mean, I think what I would say is uh, there is a time and a place for um, political appointments. This government has turned that into, um, you know, like a, 
I don't want to say torrent in the current circumstances, but yeah, a, 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 a very large number of, of jobs for the boys, primarily boys. Uh, and I think it is pretty reasonable if you look at some of them to, to raise questions about whether Australia's interests would not be better served by having career diplomats or people who are less partisan in those roles. Now, there have always been roles where uh, governments of the day have sought, you know, have, have tended to place people who have been ex-ministers or uh, have, you know, partisan links, um, and some of those people have been great. I mean, I don't think anybody would suggest that Kim Beasley was not an outstanding ambassador to the United States. Uh, but I, I don't think, look, going through some of the appointments over many years that this government has made, that you would say all of them have been on merit. Now, we'll take a, you know, careful view of that if we win. Um, but right now, I think I'm much more focused on making sure we win an election than thinking through that, Catherine. <laughs> Thank you. you. You Then planning your night of the long knives. Um, yes, okay, all right, fair enough. Uh, I want to ask you about women just before we wrap up uh, because obviously it was International Women's Day uh, earlier in the week and uh, what a 12 months we've had, Penny, really, one way and another. So I'm interested in a couple of reflections uh, from you on that. Uh, obviously, just sort of looking at Parliament's Me Too reckoning through the lens of politics, uh, the polls tell us that Scott Morrison uh, was was belted. I, don't, I think that's a reasonable description uh, by uh, female voters in the aftermath of, you know, people thinking that he didn't rise to the moment, I think, if we could put it like that. Um, there was a fall off in support from female voters. Uh, as far as I can see, certainly in our poll, there has been a recovery from a low point uh, last year, but obviously there's still a gender gap in terms of uh, support for the Prime Minister. How do you think, what's your own impression of that and how it's washed through culturally and societally and what impact it might have in the coming contest? First, and I know you don't like to be the centre of attention, Catherine, <laughs> but I do want to say to you, know, you and the other women in your publication and in the gallery who have uh, written, spoken, um, ensured that many of these stories don't simply pass, uh, have played a really important role uh, in what I think has been a year where the country has shifted. Uh, and I don't know where this will take us ultimately. I don't know how far it will go. I hope it will lead to change that is real. I hope we don't have to, in 10 years' time, still be marching as we were 10 or 20 years ago about the levels of assault and sexual violence against women. Um, I'm trying to remember when I, last, when I first went on Reclaim the Night March. Um, you know, we've been talking about this for so many years um, and you know, family violence, etc., etc. So, you know, there's, I hope it leads to systemic change. I think what it has meant is that the polity feels a greater sense of responsibility and accountability for these issues than they previously have, and that is a good thing. Whether or not governments deliver is ultimately a matter for that goes to, I think, both the quality and intention of the government. And I think the problem for Scott Morrison 
is that people doubt uh, his motivation and they doubt uh, his authenticity when it comes to these matters. Uh, and one of the things that was said to me by someone at some point last year and has stayed with me, she said, he never talks to me. When he's on TV or on radio, he never talks to me. And I thought that was so powerful because what she was actually saying wasn't a political statement around you know, policy. And, I, you know, I can talk to you about the policy differences which are marked between what Labor is uh, offering and, and the government. But what she was actually saying is, you know, he, he doesn't talk to me. Mm. And I think that's true. What about your colleagues? Obviously, you have all kinds of relationships and conversations in public life, uh, you know, with your with your own colleagues, with your political opponents. I'm I'm interested, I guess, in understanding at least in our neck of the woods, whether any of your male colleagues have learnt anything as a consequence of the last 12 months. What do you think? Well, you'd have to, you'd have to be in a cave not to learn something. <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, I, I mean, think, but, but also I've learned things. Um, I've learned something about the next generation of feminists and younger women and, you know, their courage uh, and that they will not compromise at all, which I think is admirable. Right? They're just saying enough. Um, my view is, I mean, the, these things um, as a society and parliament, or the, 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 pol the political, the polity as a part of them or subset of that society, and we, there's an enormous cultural shift over time that... Uh, has been and continues to have to be made around gender equality and respect. Uh, and, you know, the, the low point in recent years was that Tony Abbott's misogyny uh, and the sort of language that was used by him and others uh, and condoned about Julia Gillard, you know, was not called out and was not stopped. Uh, and I see... Now we're at a very different point where uh, women around the country, um, particularly younger women, but many women, are saying no. Uh, and I think our politicians have had to listen to that and sometimes it's uncomfortable and certainly it's searing, but it's important. Um, I think, you know, I've lived through affirmative action, the first waves of affirmative action inside our party and inside the Labor movement. Uh, and, you know, I don't think we're perfect. No party is. But what I would say is because of those changes, there are more women in positions of power and, our, and the men, you know, that operate within our party are more used to having women in positions of authority and power. Uh, than those on the other side. And I think that's just generically demonstrated. Uh, and that of itself creates change. But this, there is a lot more to do. There is so much more to do. Yes, yes. Uh, it's staggering how much there is still to do. Now, just let's end this way without um, revisiting the trauma of 2019 too gratuitously. <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I am curious, though, we've, uh, we've sort of nosed this conversation around 
a sort of set of propositions, assuming that it it is at least possible uh, that Labor wins the next election and you're starting to plan uh, about the government you might be in the event that that happens. Obviously, we both know it is equally possible that Labor does not win the coming election and Scott Morrison is... Uh, gets the fourth term for the coalition that he is currently seeking. In the in the event that Labor doesn't win the election, are you tired enough to give it away? Oh, God, that's not a fair question. Yes, it's a, it's a completely <laughs> fair question. It's a completely fair question. Uh, I'm just, you know, I'm just focused on winning. I mean, I I don't I don't see how we can continue with this government, uh, in part for some of the reasons that you've discussed around, you know, today. Uh, I just feel immensely frustrated uh, and at times very upset at the gap between the leadership and statesmanship or statespersonship and integrity and clarity that's required and what we see. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think I worry about what will happen if this government gets, you know, into its second decade. So, you know, that's my, you know, apart from my children, sort of my life's work is to try and return a Labor government so we can actually do much of what is needed. And do you think, I know I said last question, but you've just, from what, from your answer, no, no, you've, you've just put an interesting thought in my mind. Um, obviously, the last time Labor was in government, and speaking of post-traumatic stress, you blew it. Uh, Thanks for that. No, well, you did, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. I, I look, I, I think, yeah, and we, we, well, there's a lot we could say about. Um, that period. I, I don't think, I think we did a lot of good in terms of policy. I think we steered Australia through the global financial crisis. Uh, you know, we introduced paid parental leave, national disability insurance scheme. There are a lot of good things that were done, but obviously the internal politics brought us down, uh, internal division, and we, 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 we have paid for that uh, as, we, as we should have. And, but have you learned from it? Yes, which I think you, has been demonstrated by, um, you know, the long period of loyalty and discipline under Bill and the discipline that you see under Anthony Albanese. So do you think voters, uh, do you think voters understand that you've learnt from it? Well, ultimately people have got to make their own mind up. I mean, I, I think we've spent many years in opposition uh, demonstrating some of the qualities that we should have demonstrated, particularly in that last term of government. Um, uh, and we, we should because, you know, the, the task ahead is so much more important than any individual's. Okay. Let's end your trauma there, Petty Wong. Thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thanks. Cheers. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Penny. Thank you to Miles Martignoni, who's the executive producer of this program. Thank you to the lovely Alison Chan, who is uh, wrangling us this week. Thank you to you guys for listening. We'll be back next week.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.